Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Mr. John Blythe, a maxillofacial surgeon from the Cotswolds in the southwest of the UK. Maxillofacial surgery blends both dental and medical training into a unique surgical specialty. During his fellowship training at the European Face Centre in Belgium, John developed his expertise in managing complex developmental and post-traumatic facial injuries. He now splits his time between public and private practice. He's a consultant maxillofacial surgeon at the Royal London Hospital, Europe's biggest trauma centre, and here he manages severe facial bone and soft tissue injuries. He also consults at the Phi Clinic on Harley Street and in the Cotswolds, where he sees a mix of injectable and surgical consultations. We'll explore John's innovative combination of using both injectables and surgery to enable patients with significant facial deformity to achieve their facial potential, often with life-changing results. Hello. Hi. Good, 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 good evening. How are you? I'm very well. You're looking sharp. You've dressed up for us. Uh, I ha- well, I've just come out <laughs> in swimming pool. <laughs> fair enough. I, I've got a full day in clinic, so I, I like to dress up. Okay, no, fair enough. So you're doing a max fast list at Tapans or injectable list? Um, no. So uh, today is kind of my, so I do three days a week in the NHS, the government hospital, and then Thursdays and Fridays are my independent days. And Thursdays, I fundamentally, am, am at five. So nice. I will see um, a mixture, probably 50-50 of surgical patients and uh, non-surgical and injectable patients. Uh, Great. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's a very nice setup we have here. Excellent. So, David, meet John. John, meet David, sorry. David, <laughs> hi. John. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate it. Pleasure. Pleasure. So how did you meet um, Tapan, John? So Tapan and I initially met uh, in 2017 at an Allegan meeting. Of course. Where else? And I kind of, kind of was the kind of rabbit in um, the headlight moment for me. It was, uh, I'll take you back the story. I'll take you back a little bit earlier. I w- went in 2015 and I did my fellowship year uh, with the European Association of Cranium Axial Surgeons in Belgium, in Brussels. And uh, that was a great year of learning, sort of totally focusing on facial aesthetics. Um, but I had very little aesthetic, uh, the non-surgical um, side of things. And I got an invite, a random invite, the, the Benelux rep or the, the Brussels rep for Allegan came to the clinic and so John, you must you must come to an event where there's live injection run and I went along and uh, I, was, I was kind of blown away by by this workshop. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of November, December time. But I've been in doing facial aesthetics for a year. I've been f- f- focused on surgical base and big surgery and and, and uh, kind of full spectrum, but not really injectables. And I was thought, oh my goodness, I've missed something. <laughs> I've missed. <laughs> I've got a, um, and the, the rep then said, come in February, there's going to be a meeting in London and we'll invite you, you will be with the Benelux team 
So I returned in London to become a consultant in London, and I was a guest of the Bel- Benelux team. So I was sitting with the, with the Belgian and the Dutch at this meeting in Paddington, not so far from here. And um, it was a really, well, I'm sure you, you may have been there, but they flew people in all over the place, one of the yes. major events. And I'd never know, I'd never seen anything quite like it. It's like a rock concert, isn't it? <laughs> it was, yeah. <laughs> and I think Tapan may have been comparing at the time, but I knew very little about the injectable world and the aesthetic medicine world. This was, this was totally new. This was Neanderthal man being dropped into kind of <laughs> modern day times. Um, and it was a real shock to the system. Was uh, it um, with Maurizio, the MD codes? Uh, yeah, there may have been a little bit. I, didn't, I really, I was like shell-shocked. I didn't know the names, and these guys were kind of yeah. superstars in their own right. Yeah. And I gave some honest feedback at the very end. And the feedback was very positive in many ways, but very, very negative on the other aspect. And it turned out to be uh, Mark Chapman. <laughs> and <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and we, we laughed at this but he came to see me uh, operate, and we, we just got very, very well. He said, listen, you've got, you've got to come and speak speak with us. Yeah. And um, so we, I was invited to speak in Prague. And again, I arrived in Prague to speak, and not knowing that it would be a keynote speech. And so the yeah. night before, I didn't get any sleep, and I was, like, super nervous. And I tried the single malts in the, in the room <laughs> to get me to sleep, but it, it didn't help. Um, and, yeah, it was... It was an amazing day. Um, and I actually got onto the stage. Massimo Signori, if I yes. remember rightly, was, was, who was a wonderful guy and again became a friend, um, invited me onto the stage. And I couldn't get my words out. Yeah. It was like yeah. that, that horror where you wake up in the middle of the night thinking, you know, I've either lost all my teeth or I, 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 can't, I won't remember my lines. And I stood on the stage for about, it felt like a lifetime, probably it was about 20 seconds. Um, and then I delivered a, a presentation. I, I learned it's trying to off the cuff, mm. um, and I couldn't remember for my 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 forty minutes of script. And and luckily it came to me. And then the forty minutes suddenly sort of the lights came on, and uh, Massimo came on the stage and he was in floods of tears. And I thought I must have done really badly. <laughs> and I looked at the front row, and there were all these handkerchiefs going up to the eyes. People were were quite emotional, and it, it was. It was actually a wonderful, it was a wonderful experience, wonderful lecture. Uh, Tapan was one of the first people, and he, he, he was very, very gracious and wonderful. He came onto the stage and talked uh, with me, and um, the plan was to kind of collaborate at some stage, but you know how fast times move. Yeah. Uh, it, it, mm. Two years later, and he met me at another meeting and said, listen, we still need to sit down and have that conversation. And mm. we have that's we did eventually we did have the conversation so um yeah Tappan and i have been very good friends and we've been working together uh for over a year now in the now um john you are the you are the first i think we're the, the first max vac surgeon we've had on the podcast we've had plenty of plastic surgeons and ent's and cosmetic surgeons and i'm sure there's a lot of people listening to the podcast at the moment saying what on earth is a max vac surgeon um, so for those of us that aren't medically inclined or aren't familiar with this specialty, could you just maybe break it down for us a little bit in terms of what it is and what you do? So I think that that's a really uh, interesting question, David. I want to say thank you very much. I feel really honoured to be flying the flag 
for Max Fax. Um, being a Max Fax surgeon is just part of what I do. Um, it's just one of the facets of, of my um, kind of uh, surface. Um, however, maxillofacial surgery is, has had a huge development over the last, so let's say, a century. You know, you imagine the days of 1916, Battle of the Somme time. Um, some of the major guys on the front line fixing the soldiers were, were dentists. Yeah. Yeah. French, French dentists, and Brits. And one of my heroes, Sir Harold Gillies, a New Zealander from, I think, um, Dunedin, um, traveled across and was trained at Bart's, uh, my, my home turf, and was ENT um, by background. I actually went to the front line and learned a lot of his skills by the, from the, the dentists that, that were there. And the, the, the the rise of the kind of the oral surgeon and the oral maxillofacial surgeon followed. If you ever get a chance to download from the internet, um, so Harold Gilly's book, he has kind of chronologically kind of a series of about 5,000 cases of what he did. And the differences between, say, 1916 and 2016 was immense. And uh, you know, they, ha they had a lot of creativity. Uh, uh, they had a lot of beds. We have bed managers. They, we had, we have diathermy. They handled blood with wearing rubber boots. So then it was worlds apart. And I think you know, over that hundred years, there was a recognition that actually let's let's drop the type and we see the, the benefits by bringing into plastics oral surgeons and then this new era of maxillofacial surgeons together. Um, and then yeah, the the rest is history with the development of Mackindo and the guinea pig club and that was probably the, the interest that led me into doing what i do is that i at school now um, i was toying with being a pilot and i was in the raf at school but i i was useless at taking orders and i thought i'm just gonna i would get kicked out if i went into the raf um but uh deep down i wanted to do surgery and i had a had a kind of a year out in Australia and worked in a school, a short school in North Sydney. Uh, oh, yeah. Which is where I went to prep school many, many years ago. And I lived in Manly. And I, as a little boy, my shorts, blazer, and cap would walk across uh, Manly <laughs> to the, uh, the jet cat or the ferry across to the, yeah. the harbour. And then uh, the train a couple of stops up to North Sydney, um, which huge memories. But it, it was during that year that, uh, yeah, I had to kind of cement what I wanted to do and certainly was the way forward. And I think I actually turned out, I was invited to British Airways for some interviews. And I was having such a great time in Australia. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised you made it back. <laughs> a lot of people who come out from Britain don't end up going back. I tell you, it was hard. It was absolutely amazing. I'm in, I'm in love with Australia. I, I love the people, yeah. I love the scenery. Well, and, we've been uh, trying to get rid I'm, of Jake for three years. Three, five and a half. Unfortunately, whenever I visit Australia, the, the Australian cricket team are so amazingly good. I always get apt. I always try and lose the accent. Um, and whenever we, when the English, the Poms play out of their skin, I'm, I'm never anywhere near Australia. Well, John, when so, you're next uh, over, we'll go to the SCG and we'll be the two Poms with our flag. Don't worry. That, that would be amazing. I remember yeah. Philip de Freitas bowling at the SCG when I was <laughs> oh, yeah. well, thinking this, this is heaven. 
you know, yeah. in, the, in the pajama cricket back in the eighties. Yeah. So, so I'm, it's tragic news about Dean Jones. You know, he yeah, was a, I know. A school, terrible schoolboy hero. So I'm, I do. You know, I'm, I'm immensely um, sad about that. Yeah, he's only young too. 60, 65 or something. No, he's younger than that. He was 50, I think he was fifty nine. But what, yeah. he, yeah. what he did in, in the game, I remember sitting at Lords with my father years yeah. ago to think this guy is potentially one of the best number three, number fours in the side yeah. in yeah. the world. So uh, yeah. yeah, huge, huge respect uh, out to Australia for Dean Jones. Um, so, do you think most Max? Well most dentists do you think that they then kind of get a bit bored and then think oh I'll go and do medicine now and and sort of kill <laughs> themselves I tell you with COVID everything is kind of closed <laughs> down so yeah. you know that going back to medical school it's probably quite a nice idea to just go back hit the books um you know I think I think um the max fats pathway is brutal it is brutal um, it's crazy five years of dentistry a year as a uh a, dent, a dental surgeon getting re, uh, your registration and going back as a house officer, then maybe three to five years of medicine, then going at, on, back onto the ward as a general uh, junior house officer and then working through general surgery. And only if you're lucky, you know, may you get as far as your registrar training. I think there's a 50-50 dropout. Yeah. Um, so you get these you don't get consultancy to late thirties, early forties, which, which is, um, which is, you know, you lose some of the best years of your life, twenties and thirties, having to focus on exams on a regular basis. I think, uh, um, dentistry is an amazing, I, I still am a dentist. I still consider myself a dentist. Uh, it's, it's an amazing, um, area to be, and I don't think it's given enough credit, particularly from the aesthetics world looking out in that's maybe something we'll talk about a little bit later but i think you have to have you've got to you've got to feel it within that surgery is your because otherwise it's brutal you're, you're just you'll burn out and you've got that. So. yeah i mean here i can't speak hand on heart that i know exactly the training pathway but you know when i was working at royal prince alfred which is here in sydney um all of the MaxFax cases were covered by plastics. We didn't have on-site MaxFax, but it was a tertiary trauma center. So, um, I don't know, it's interesting. And I felt like, fair enough, if, if that's what you want to do, then you know that's who I'll speak to. But it, it felt like it wasn't really their specialty. I think, yeah, it's been very difficult. I think the politics between all that, I want to avoid. I have some great <laughs> friends of plastics and EMT. And I'm, I'm, when you get to know me, I'm very laid back. And uh, I'm not. I will turn up for work. The patient is my number one priority. So um, everything else kind of goes out the window. Fair enough. So, what does your typical day or or week of MaxFax surgery look like? What are your typical cases? Um, What are your? Yeah, how often your clinics? All that kind of stuff. Um, Typical. A typical day for me starts about five seventeen. (laughs) So I wake wake up, and this morning I I like to hit the swimming pool. So I try and swim 40, 50 minutes in the morning. And then Tepan have got me to have a coffee straight afterwards. And I'm like a Labrador. I've got that unbound of energy for the remaining part of the day. And then the, the first three days of the week are um, kind of purely max facts. Thursdays is my, my facial plastics and cosmetic day. And Friday um, is a, a blur between facial aesthetics and, and dentistry slash dental implants. 
Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then Saturday, Sunday, it's purely batting down the hatches and focus on that, everything outside of surgery and aesthetics. So mm. um, Monday, we'll have all-day clinics, and uh, then I have Tuesday, we'll be an all-day uh, operating list that normally starts about 8.30 a.m. and finishes about 7.30, 8pm for that evening. Mm. So it's a long day, uh, and it's dealing with minor or major trauma that has come into the hospital the previous week or two. So facial yeah. fractures, jaw fractures, missing uh, teeth, or was that not so much? Yeah, so it's, I'm, I'm in a really wonderful unit at hospital, the Royal London Hospital in London. Which is, ah, that was my last job in the UK, covering trauma and general surgery. Oh, okay, very good. And so the, yeah, this is where I trained and come back as a consultant. But the the uh, work mix is is quite a, quite amazing. Yeah, it is. So yeah. typically we have cyclists. The, the number of cyclists on the roads now have just gone through the roof. There's cycle highways now that have been put in. They're like velodromes. The speed that people are getting on there is a huge demographic on those cycle lanes. So we're getting a number of cycle-related trauma. The majority of people wear helmets, but uh, there's no facial protection. Mm. Um, And then a lot of collisions, pedestrians, but also there is an underworld in London. There is a fair amount of physical violence, domestic violence. And unfortunately, this year, we've seen an increased rate of jumpers, suicide attempts, and... Uh, you, you have the road traffic uh, victims as well. And then yeah. previously, it's been a centre where the terrorist victims have come to. And so we see a huge variety um, of, of cases. Uh, uh, I work alongside a really amazing team, uh, Offside Homes and Co. And together as a team, uh, we, we do our best for the patients uh, on a Tuesday and Wednesday in, in surgery. I still remember mm. the trauma bay. It's one of the most terrifying but impressive things I've ever seen. So they've got, you know, 10 beds or so. They've got the lift from the helipad down into the trauma bay. Often they'll have a CT scan before you've even seen them. And then everyone turns up and uh, normally the person sort of running the trauma call will sit in a chair and command. And it's a pretty amazing sort of team when you work in that um, it's, it's lovely and it's gold, gold standard but the journey starts way before and the pre-hospital care with EMS and the paramedics in London uh, and beyond is just phenomenal Yeah, people who mm. probably would have died in the 70s, 80s and 90s from their horrific injuries are being brought into hospital tubed, bagged uh, and, and really um, straight into intensive care and they're surviving yeah so mm. we are seeing facial and craniofacial trauma that is is almost unheard of. That you, you sometimes feel that these people are not going to survive. Yeah. But you fast forward six months and they're sitting in front of you in clinic with their family and their young children, yeah. and you think this this has been an amazing collaboration of nurses, intensivists, and, and anaesthetic colleagues uh, all the way through. Uh, so. It's, it's lovely to see this kind of medical orchestra coming together for acute trauma. Slightly off mm. topic, but you must have read this last week. I thought this was amazing. Um, in the UK, they've got um, the, uh, I don't know what you call them, the rural paramedics. They're now using or they're trialing a rocket pack 
to fly up mountains and hills to get to people quicker. Have you seen that? I want one. I want one. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not joking. It's, it's like um, Iron Man. They've got um, rockets on their arms and their legs, and I'm not kidding. They will fly up a hill, and they'll be Jake, there. And Jake, Jake, you're pulling my legs, surely. I'm, I'm absolutely serious. You can Google this. They're trialing lists, and it's real. Because they you know, see a few accidents. I'll, I'll, I'll believe you when I see it, gentlemen. I, I, I'm going to send you some WhatsApp after. I'm not pulling your leg. I'm serious. Uh, so, John, what was... What was the biggest challenge for you moving from an area of medicine that sounds like it was purely um, for, well, not really aesthetic purposes in terms of people wanting to beautify themselves. You were doing reconstructive, restorative restorative kind of work. What was the biggest challenge for you, I guess, physically and, and mentally getting your head around transitioning to something where people are coming to see you for, I guess you'd see maybe in your eyes at that time, something fairly benign or unimportant um, what was that transition like? Uh, this is this is a, an interesting point in this. Uh, I think there there is a risk of feeling that aesthetics is 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 small fry compared to what is being done for form and function in hospital, and I think that that's incorrect. Uh, I think you have to look at it uh, from very different aspects, from the patient's eyes and. Uh, let me give you an example. I sit in clinics and I see patients with facial scars. And some of these facial scars are so small that you don't know quite why there, there is this concern that they want me to do something aesthetic to deal with the scar. And patients often don't like to fully explore the, the psychological background behind it. We, are, we have clinical psychologists, which are, are wonderful to have in the service. But some of these patients may, you find out that the scar is the cue in the morning when they look in the mirror of an upside down car that is in a ditch and they're, they're in a contorted position next to their dead husband. Mm. And that three millimeter scar is the daily cue for, for and the catastrophic uh, cascade of psychological events and the impact on the wider family for that small scar is, is immense. So through a kind of collaboration with clinical psychologists and trying to do your best to flatten the scar or resurface the scar with a little bit of, little bit of laser work um, has a profound impact. And often hospital managers and people who are in charge of the government purse commissioning, they don't see I'll see these patients and it is a really profound, profound effect to have. So whenever I sit in clinic, I never second guess my patients. And one of the first things I say is to a patient is, um, if we fast forward a year and we are both here after your treatment, what are you going to turn around and say, John, that was the best treatment I've ever had. What does it look like? I think it's, it's marrying expectations is really important yeah. from the yeah. outset. Uh, yeah. And that's, you know, when it comes to MDT and, and both in the hospital base and with Tapan and Apple and the guys here, that has a profound um, plan. It gives great planning strategy for patients. So, um, no, I um, have, uh, I think, all forms of aesthetics 
post-traumatic kind of post-traumatic facial rejuvenation, they all have a valid role to play in society. Yeah. Yeah. It's um it's almost known as looked at as the dark arts um for I guess a lot of people that are outside of this industry, you know, that are dealing with, you know, you know, people with cancer and, you know, having aneurysms and all sorts of, you know, super serious stuff. It is still seen a little bit like that. Um, from from the outside looking in, uh, this this is a great. Yeah, this is one of the tragic parts of aesthetics. It, it gets a bad press, and mm. sometimes the we have to look in and we have to be reflective. And I think that sometimes we are there is some blame from within for how we are portrayed uh, overall. Potentially, social media is a wonderful tool, but it all can so it can be. <laughs> extremely harmful and just just yeah. one just to give you one example i have a 11 uh, year old daughter who is his beautiful 11 year old daughter and i have to be very guarding of what i say but um she might come she'll come to me and say daddy i'm ugly I, i'm ugly and I, I, I just don't want to go to school i'm concerned my friends will look at me and she's not ugly she is a yeah she's a great little girl growing up in society which has a huge impact on looking good yeah and so some of the trends I, i'm, I'm a, i'd like to dismiss i'm a, um i'm an opponent to trends and facial settings i think we should be always kind of considering some classical or natural looks this is something that we can develop talk about another podcast i don't mm. want to go too too political on uh, talking with you guys, but we have a huge moral and ethical duty to the generations coming up. And being a, a father and listening to um, my daughter and her friends when they come around, it shows that we have a very, very important role to play in how we convey aesthetics, beautiful ideals, and how we manage that. Because between the three of us, a the, if we look at the fox eye topic, uh-huh. which is hugely mm-hmm. yeah. important. Okay. Uh, now, I talk, I was down in Selfridges uh, the other week talking to some of the great makeup artists. I would love that those, those are the people that you can do fox eyes with makeup beautifully. But I think if we step out of what is normal, what is, what is non-human, we are opening a can of worms and we have a responsibility to for the next generations and, and for the current children not to put uh, ascetic ideals that are beyond the scope of what human is. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of my waxing lyrical on, on, on that topic. I think that goes to the core of everything that we do as aestheticians. I mean, I was at David's clinic today and I, I turned away a patient because she was, you know, overly augmented and we had a long chat. I didn't just say no. I, I tried to explain my reasoning and she actually kind of got it in the end. But the weird thing is, even though she got it, she still wanted it. She understood, she understood everything that I was saying. She agreed, but she still wanted it because she's bombarded by social media, Instagram, filtered faces, face tuning, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And you know the the non-normal look becomes the aspiration, and it's it's really dangerous. It's a slippery slope. Yeah, it's it, gone beyond when you walk into a room. The first thing that you see about someone is how 
beautiful their eyes are. And or you can certainly scan the face, the eyes, the nose, the lips, the mouth. You know, people are people are taking it to a totally new level. And I just think we we as a I don't like the word industry necessarily industry. I get get why it's called an industry, but I, I want to keep this a, a field of medicine. Yeah. So I, I I think as as a kind of a KOL uh, for various uh, companies, I think we have a really important role moving forward and training the, the up and coming aesthetic doctors who are going to surpass what we are doing today. Yeah. Um, so to be really grounded, uh, I think this is a really important topic to take forth. So you said you started injectables around 2015, is that right? Uh, yes. Yeah, 2015. I remember the, the rep dropping in the Juvederm range for me and uh, explaining. And it was interesting because I, I, I kind of always, part of me always wanted to be an artist. Mm. <laughs> I was never good enough to, to go to art school and make it. Well, I've I seen some of your drawings on Instagram. They're pretty good. <laughs> I dabble. I get so three to four hours max. To, to do something, so I have to be quick. But um, I was—it was struck me that facial aesthetics was a little bit like neo-impressionism in the, the late nineteenth century, an area called pointillism, where if you look at some of Suget's and Renoir's and even Van Gogh, they were painting pictures made up of very subtle dots, almost geographic geometrical dots. And it was the blend of colors when you stood back that it was an absolute masterpiece. Mm. And so these 2D masterpieces, and then I was told, you have to inject here, 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 and you will create a living masterpiece. And <laughs> it did, I, I found it kind of, it quite hard to comprehend this roadmap where I look at both your faces, I, you know, I, I see faces all day, there, there are such individual differences. Yeah. And uh, I've just found I've got to understand more about it. So looking at some of the great guys internationally, there are so many different ways to um, want to treat a face or paint a, a masterpiece. But it's lovely. So that was my first introduction was to, to inject um, in a pointillism appro approach. Um, and then yeah, 2016, 2016 was the, the main period for me when my injection went online. So what does your injectable practice look like? Are you doing basic, you know, uh, you know, Botox and glabellas and frown lines, or are you only doing, you know, post-trauma, palsies, hemifacial, asymmetry, etc.? So, so when I, in independent practice, it's majority, it's routine mm -hmm. neurotoxin placement. Uh, I'll talk about it a little bit later about the sort of innovative approaches to yeah. with, with some HAs. Uh, and I have my kind of my own concept on facial augmentation. Uh, and it kind of is a blend. I've I had some, been some great meetings where there's been people like Maurizio and Arthur and Ken Remington, uh, some wonderful Stephen Liu. And you get time and it's what went away from the podium and, and having a cup of coffee with them and just touching base is some of the most important medical education that I have come across. And that's why I've loved it. And it's it just worth flying halfway around the world just to have a five-minute coffee with these guys. I still, 
Ken Remington, we still email on a, almost on a weekly basis. He's an absolute legend. Um, and I wouldn't have met him if I hadn't been invited to those, to those shop, uh, those, those events. But coming back so that, yes, it's, it's a little bit of everything, but within the hospital system, um, I managed, um, to get HA on the hospital formulary after a very long business. That's phase. amazing. Yeah. And that was, that, that one took a long time. That was hard. Uh, and I use it for facial deformity patients. And this is, mm. it's quite immense. Some facial paralysis patients will come to clinic and say they haven't been outside or they don't go out socially and they haven't been out for decades. I'd love to be a fly in the room when you had that conversation with the NHS because whether you use HA or a scalpel, the result is a patient is psychologically and cosmetically improved. So what's yeah, the problem? I, I think... I think uh, a lot of patients were writing in feedback and they, they couldn't ignore the evidence from, from the patients, which, was, which is, you know, you don't mark it. You, um, I just let the patients do the talking, yeah. okay, and see whether or not the commissioning bodies, the hospital trust, whether that is the direction of travel. And I understand, you know, the, the government hospitals are almost kind of bankrupt. So it is, it's an, it's a, it was a difficult conversation to have, but we want to give gold, the golden standard care to patients. So you've got to fight for your patients. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, to, to be able to give a little bit of uh, Botox and some, some hyaluronic acid for myomodulation alongside some surgery, such as the Labe, Labe approach. And these patients are coming back. And you know, this one lady said, I've been to my daughter's graduation. I never thought I'd see my daughter graduate. I never leave the house. And it was a very emotional conversation that, that this was a combination of surgery and myomodulation and innovative techniques that I had worked hard behind the scenes of any formal registrar training in the UK to learn the techniques and, and try and sort of bring it, bring it, bring it to a hospital setting. So that was that was a very very powerful time for me well it's one of those ones where you know if you're trying to do a, a cost um benefit analysis and try and sell it as a business case to a hospital manager i don't know how you do that because you can't you know the impact on that woman that you gave in this example she could have gone throughout life being a hermit being on antidepressants and bouncing in around of GPs and psychologists and, and the impact on her quality of care and her family and everything else. How do you cost that and, and make that into an argument to a hospital? You're totally right, Jake. And it's about having a multidisciplinary team approach to trauma and to post-traumatic deformity. Clinical psychologists, a wider team of plastic surgeons, ENT, ocular plastics, max fats, all, you know, it's having that uh, combined synergistic approach is really helpful. But you know, I, I also use fat. So there is a, there's an ongoing debate about fat injections. In some people's hands, fat doesn't work. In my hands, fat, fat, fat does very, very well. You see good results. So it's courses for courses, and there are times for HA, there's times for fat, there's times for surgery. Yes time for saying no we can't help you um, other than support 
that was something I was going to ask you in terms of, you know, being a surgeon and having this amazing array of skills that you have. What's your decision-making process on when you feel you've reached the limitations of what you can do non-surgically and then how, how do you sort of go about then, I guess, crossing that bridge and moving into the surgical world? Like what, what's that What's that process like? I think it's, it is a, there's a spectrum. You have to go through an algorithm first of patient factors, what their expectations are, uh, the, the type of deformity. So I'm not get, if, I, if it's a cranioplasty patient who has, say, keeled over in the centre of uh, London with a brain hemorrhage and they've had a massive uh, craniectomy and an artificial prosthesis has gone back in, then I can't necessarily use an artificial substance to rebuild the temporal region for fear of infection or possibly that direct link with the meninges. Uh, so I have to think about alternative solutions. Um, if it's simple scar work, then so there's a spectrum. So you have to try and work out. But um, again, if the book, the face is a multi-layer. Yeah. You've got to think bone, muscle, fat pads, subcutaneous and skin, jaws, yeah. teeth, gingiver, and beyond. Um, and really, if, if bone is missing, how do we put bone or, or an alternative 3D foundation back? How do we deal with atrophic and muscle, dysfunctional muscle? And if there's fat pad disruption, ligamentous disruption, skin disruption, how best to do it? And then often you have to step back and each patient is an individual um, that you've got to try and work out. And sometimes you have to think outside the box. Um, yeah. And then you put it to the group and mm. take it through the MDT. And they say, yeah. John, that, 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 that sounds really good or actually that, that's probably too wacky. Okay, yeah. that, that's I probably made that question a little more difficult for you than than um, than I could have. I, I was sort of more referencing, I guess, your aesthetic patients that come in and go, you know, Doc, I don't like the shape of my chin or, you know, my cheeks or what have you. And, and uh, sorry, I didn't mean like people that have had like major, major trauma. Sorry, I sort of, I, I think I set you up there a bit. Sorry. Can I rephrase the question? Because I, 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 this is actually something I wanted to ask you. And this is the crossover of aesthetics and, and um, orthodontics and MaxVax as well. So, you know, if someone comes to, to me uh, with a, you know, um, a smaller chin or a truder chin, what's, what simple examination can I do as an injector at the bedside to check their jaw, their teeth, um, their sleep history, their snoring, all of that kind of stuff to work out? Is this worth just treating cosmetically or do I actually need to send them to someone like yourself or an orthodontist to, to work on the jaw shape? And the teeth. This, is a, this is a phenomenally good question. Phenomenally good. Now, um, let's just, if we go back just a moment and just think before pre-aesthetic clinics, what that patient, what would have probably happened to that patient is that mom or dad in the early teens may have picked up that there was a, a problem um, or the patient may have gone in mid-teens to their GP and the dentist might have said, okay, the, the small chin is linked to a small jaw, and I can see that there is an abnormal bite, malocclusion. There is a, an overjet. I'm going to send you to my orthodontist, and the orthodontist is going to have a look and determine whether they can correct the dental problem by braces alone or whether they, it's actually a skeletal problem that they need surgical support. So they, the surgeon will then get 
uh, the patient will then get referred into a hospital for potentially orthognathic and jaw corrective surgery. Um, the GP, for example, I have a small chin or I have back wing ears, will go to ENT and vice versa. We, we then fast forward 20, 30 years into um, the aesthetic era. People aren't presenting initially to their dentist with these problems or to their GP that come to the aesthetic practitioner. And so the level of knowledge of the injector, aesthetic doctor, has to almost encompass ENT, MaxFrax, dental, ortho orthodontic, and aesthetic. And so it, this is like gold standard for you guys because um, you're, you're potentially the, 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 the general aesthetic practitioner for the face. So you have to determine with the patient, do they have an underlying dental and skeletal deformity. And if this patient's 18 or 20 and they've completed their maturation of their skeletal growth, it does this patient with a weak chin, should they have a high, a high concentration HA in their chin every 18 to 24 months for the rest of their aesthetic life, which maybe they want to look fantastic to 75. Okay, I see patients coming to the clinic in their 70s and 80s looking unbelievable and they're still very, very, you know, the, the, the physical aspect is hugely important. Um, that is a lot of treatment over the years and this is non-government paying treatment. So yes. like, what is the cost of having a chin augmentation with HA every two years for the rest of their adult life? Or mm. do they get referred in a more traditional way for jaw corrective treatments, not I don't think uh, governments are just going to focus on a, a genioplasty for, for cosmetic reasons, but is there an underlying problem? Um, or is there a halfway house? And that kind of goes into the realms of somebody maybe spotted in their 40s who may not want to have injectables or may want to have injectables, but having a really open and honest conversation with them about all the channels that they can go through. So coming back to your original point, uh, is is training and the aesthetic training is is crucial uh, of being able to fully assess the face. So yeah. it's part of the master classes that I talk on with, with Tapan. We're trying to get the approach of assessing the face both subjectively, aesthetically, and then anthropometrically. So you're you're taking measurements, standardised measurements that you use for the next five, ten years, and then you'll retire the next aesthetic doctor will then have these standardized assessments all the way because a, a Dr. Jake jawline may be different to one that your successor is going to do in 10 years. How do you get that reciprocal appearance all the way through yes. is fascinating. So the dental assessment has to be a part of the aesthetic examination. Mm. I was... Um listening to a very interesting discussion a few months ago um, in relation to the way that the food that we're eating and the way that we're breathing, um, I guess, in this day and age is affecting the way that our jaws and our faces are developing and looking I at... I listened say, to that. That was a good podcast. I listened to yes, that. Yes, okay, there you podcast. go. You know what I'm talking about. So, and I found it really fascinating. And the gentleman was talking about, you know, putting things in his mouth to, to widen his jaw and talking about the sort of foods that we're eating. And it seems like you know, this sort of world that we're living in where everything's so super processed and we're living such unhealthy lives. You know, do you agree with that sort of 
mean, maybe you can fill the listeners in on what, what we're talking about here, and I'm just keen, keen to get your thoughts on that. Oh, this is this is a this is an interesting topic. <laughs> <laughs> we're going we're going off piste here quite significantly. The best podcast um, go off piece, John. Don't worry. Uh, don't worry. Uh, I I'm a man. I like to see evidence. Uh, yep. and, and see, there is a lot, 50% of what we're taught today will be in the history books in five years' time. Yes. Okay. And, and I, I, my, my gut feeling is nutrition is, I'm not an expert in nutrition. Okay. I, yep. um, I, I, I've tried to be a vegetarian for a very limited period. I couldn't do it. <laughs> uh, I like, and I see what some of my colleagues in this clinic do, and I'm just, in all of what they do, it's, it's amazing. Uh, I think you guys are possibly vegan or vegetarian. So. No, the right. is, I'm certainly not. <laughs> no, I tried vegan for two years, and then and then um, I saw the light oh, again. <laughs> but when you you can't you can't walk past you can't walk past Watson's without sort of wanting seafood in Sydney. You know, there's some great places to eat. <laughs> it would be impossible not to uh, be a meat eater if I was living in Sydney. Uh, I. I it's, a, it's an interesting concept. I, I couldn't give you enough. I'm not an expert in the area, so I would not That's like okay. to dabble. Yeah, it was just an off the off the cuff question. I thought um, I'd ask it to ask it ask it of you because I found it quite interesting. But that's okay. We can right. discuss it another time. Just from a, a jaw chewing perspective, yeah, it's our, our facial muscles are like going to the gym. If you're going to chew excessively with a heavy grain diet or a significant carnivorous diet your masseters, your temporalis muscles are going to increase. Okay, if you go to a liquid-based diet, your muscles of mastication are going to be um, obsolete. So the muscles are going to thin. It's like you, know, you go to the gym, you go to the pool, you work out, you hold on to that muscle mass. If you don't use those muscles, the muscles become obsolete and they, 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 head, they head off. Um, yeah. So... There's an important sort of fun- element of function with the diet, and yeah. men, men particularly, are wanting sharp jaws, strong jaw lines, and that's, I think uh, yeah, that's an interesting study actually to potentially look at three D facial analysis of yeah. long term VPs versus um, carnivorous diets. But no, yeah. that's too often for me. Was he? Um, I think he was discussing also not just the muscle, was also the development of the jaw in early age, and you know it would potentially not develop as a, as it should have without having those. Yeah, you know, again, I don't know if John's an expert on this. No, but no, no. Most <laughs> use of dummies and thumb sucking and nail biting. Oh. All of these things. So, are so digi- digi- digital habits. If you have a thumb in your mouth for more than six hours a day in childhood for a prolonged period you are going to have profanation of your own sizes beyond the ideal of 109 in Caucasian, uh, Caucasian measurements, um, even more in kind of Afro-Caribbean measurements. And so you're going to get uh, profanation of incisors. That's going to mean that the, lip, the way that the lip sits is going to be unfavorable. You will not get an oral seal, so you will then have to swallow with a potentially a tongue thrust to form a seal with the lower lip. That affects the mentalis activity. That again, the whole the whole activity starts to impact. Uh, yeah. Likewise, if you have problems and you're, you're, you have nasal congestion, uh, you potentially are, are breathing through your mouth all the time. 
then that can lead to malathesias as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's, it's an interesting topic. Yeah. Sorry, we went a bit off pace there. I just, um, yeah, because it's like technology is having impact on us everywhere. You know, we're on the phones, it's affecting our posture. It's just believing, so, yeah, anyway. Carry on. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to wheel us back to where we were because this absolutely fascinates me. And this, I think this is where I'm going with aesthetics. Is You said that you and Tapan are sort of thinking about anthropometrics and trying to work out a system to assess a face and teeth for injectors. What does that look like? Um, watch this space. I think aesthetics is hugely, hugely complex. And I think too many, we're we're relying too much on subjective, the subjective assessment. Yeah. And what you're, when, if I took you to the National Gallery uh, to look at the artwork, I know which rooms that I would go to and gaze. And there would be paintings that you would go off to look at that I think, what on earth? No, no, this is just unbelievable. Well, you're, you obviously don't see beauty sort of thing. So um, we have to try and align our sights so that we are um, coming from the same direction for patients. And so by having a standardized approach is really important. Mm. But we, we, we're also treating different populations, different potentially ethnicities, cosmopolitan cities. Some people are more in rural areas. We have to take... Um, ethnic um, and cultural variabilities into account. So by having a standardized approach but allowing some variability for that, I think is important. I think that's where aesthetics has to go to. It has to become more objective. What we were discussing before about, um, you know, teeth and malocclusions and, and dental history, etc. Is there anything that you could give some bullet points for injectors to say, this is a red flag, I think you should send them to their dentist just for a discussion before you embark on injecting. For example, the small chin or, um, you know, even lip treatments because that's affected by the dental arcade and so on. Yeah. Okay. How, how best? Let, let's go extra orally first. So looking um, to this, I would look at the patient from the front and I would look at potentially the midlines. Uh, Glabella, nasal nasal tip, lip midline, uh, chin midline. Mm-hmm. If there's major asymmetries, I think you need to get a, a wider team approach. From the uh, corners of the mouth, okay, if one corner of the mouth is hanging lower, there may be a dental or a skeletal cant that will be um, distracting. Whatever you do with with your treatments, it's always going to distract, and you never feel that you've achieved 100% of your goal. So again, that may be something that has to be corrected. Yeah. Looking from the profile of the patient, you need to identify your proportions and symmetry, but potentially drop a line from the... Uh, the uh, subnasale or the uh, S point of the underside of the nose, and do your Steiner's line or your Ricketts analysis. And identify where are the lips, where is the soft tissue begonium on that line. If it's miles behind, if the soft tissue begonium is miles behind that line, well, there's a huge, there's a potential real skeletal problem. They're going to need huge amounts of product, which, which may be the way forward. 
just to put that in, so just some layman's terms for the people who don't know what rickets line is and the Pagonian. Can you just so um, so the rickets is when you take a, a line from the tip of the nose and yep. then you drop it down. It should be pretty much resting on the lips if they haven't been injected and augmented. Yes, and they should be touching on the soft tissue we're going on. Now, in the retropanatic mandible, this joint is going to sit further back. Yes. Okay, so yes. the line will touch the nose, the lips, there'll be a massive step on. Yeah. It may be in front of the line, and we have a prognathic mandible. Um, but also, you have to take into account with the lips, have they been augmented? Because you know, Angelina Jolie has one of those great faces done some lecturing in Naples on, on her dimensions. And she, it works. She has large lips she's, and the tip of the nose. She doesn't have a big nasal projection, but you have to adjust the soft tissue begonia, or otherwise her normal chin will look too small. So it yeah. has to be augmented. So you have to kind of blend everything together for symmetry, proportion, harmony. And so it's that approach. But also, then you have to look inside the mouth. Yeah, and you, uh, it is it is highly complex. But fundamentally, if you take one piece away when looking inside the mouth, it's the position of the upper central incisors. The upper central incisors you should see when at rest, without smiling, a female, a beautiful ideal is zero to four millimeters of natural inside. Mm -hmm. Okay. When they're smiling, you should see 100% of their upper front teeth, 100%, plus between two and three, possibly four millimeters of gingiva, yeah. providing that the tooth is not so shortened, hasn't been worn down, and is a normal proportion. Okay, Some beyond there, people are saying this is a gummy smile. Three, four mils, that is a gummy smile. It isn't necessarily, and I'll come back to that point in a minute. Um, if there is problems and they're not showing that, what is the proportion of the upper lip? Maybe there is the, the upper lip is too long. It's a surgical problem, but it may be that the upper jaw, the vertical height is too short. And so whatever you do with fillers, you're, you're always going to, you're never going to have, as we say, the eyes are central of the beauty of the face and the eyelids and the periorbital region frames the eyes. The lips and the soft tissues framing, I feel that the teeth are one of the most important aspects Okay, yeah. of, for, for patients. Some come asking for facelift. I say, no, let me just focus on your teeth. I give them veneers and they never come back for facelift again because they're, they're happy. Um, so it's, it's learning about the ratios uh, and also if the bite is not right, if it's not a class one, if there's a cross bite, then they need to see an orthodontist and, and a dentist. And if it's a wider team, you know, be, as I say, and I, when I lecture for uh, Previously, for Allegan, was about the aesthetic web. We, we don't have a reconstructive ladder anymore. We have so many technologies, non-injectable and surgical treatments. We are part of a global community now. And we have to link in with doctors and injectors, dentists, orthodontists, clinical psychologists, um, even potentially makeup artists and, and skin uh, and dermatologists to give the best for our patients. And yeah. so we, we can all chip in. There's, there's enough patients out there uh, just getting the right diagnosis that leads to the right treatment. So going back to what you're saying about the malocclusions of the teeth, I mean, 
I did a quick Google on Wikipedia before you came on. And I was like, shit, this is too much to learn in like five minutes. But broadly speaking, a, a class one is where the teeth are exactly on top of each other. That's a, like a neutral pose. Is that right? Yeah. So you've got, you've got a molar cl- classification, you've got a skeletal classification, you've got an incisor classification. So let's take that one by one. So the, in terms of the incisors, Okay, so when you feel the front of your tooth and you feel the back, there's a little yeah. plateau on the back of your tooth. So your lower teeth should be almost on the vertical line with the plateau behind. Yeah. Okay, that would be a that would be a class one occlusion. Okay. okay. A class two occlusion is when the lower incisors are sitting behind that plateau. Right. Okay. And that might that might be because the upper teeth are proclined. Yes. Okay. Or they may be retroclined. Okay. And the back teeth, the short, just a short jaw, the, the yeah. teeth are pulling yeah. back here. Um, or you have a class three. So it's either edge to edge. Okay. Or beyond. Okay. So the bottom so, teeth are beyond the top is class three. And so often in, in, in males, you, know, you can actually, the class three is the strong, powerful jaw. You can, you can, you know that that is seen as 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 beautiful yeah uh, but going way beyond you start to lose lose um attractiveness so that's then the mold the molars in a different kettle of fish the angle classification i won't go there but you're no. aware of the upper jaws again if you place your index finger and your middle finger just into the hollow above the lip and the lower lip okay it sh- they should free but this line should remain on the horizontal well, the, the reason you're... I was interested is because I was thinking for aesthetic injectors, if you saw someone had either an obvious class three, which is where the bottom teeth are in front of the top, or an obvious class two where the bottom teeth are well behind the top teeth, that might be like a simple test at the end of the bed to say, I'm not a dentist, but I think you might need dental or orthonathic opinion rather than just yeah. a filler. I'm just going to get you an you know yeah I just I'm just going to get a dental or orthodontic opinion, but typically the class three it may not be the lower face that's a problem they may have a hyperplastic maxilla, so they're coming to you even male or female that they want zygomatic augmentation yeah or they, you have scleral show and this is there is no fullness that there is no fullness to the cheek so you have a different conversation they may be coming to ask about their jaw and say actually the problem is in the mid face. There's yeah. some subtle things that we can do, and you will absolutely love it. Um, but you know, you, that, that's uh, it's yeah. Facial assessment is very, very complex. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, my my first ever Volux case that I did here in Australia, I don't know, two months ago, mm-hmm. she had a tiny, tiny chin. This is the one I did on Instagram, and she'd already seen, thank God, um, uh, an author. Sorry, uh, uh, an author. Nath- I can't even say the yeah. word. Orthonathic opinion. And they'd said, look, you don't have a dental problem. You've just got a, a small chin. That you, know, you don't need braces. You don't need jaw surgery. Um, so, you know, if you want, we can break your jaw and bring it forwards, but that's up to you and it's going to be very expensive and, you know, a, a lot of downtime. So she came to me for a second opinion and having ticked that box of, okay, you don't need anything hugely invasive if you don't want to. This is purely cosmetic. Let's give this a crack. And she was stoked with her result. She was so happy. I, I, I think I think this is what is so wonderful about injectable. 
it gives you this the, the armamentarium to fix jaw and, and kind of um, I don't say correct because it, it's not correction. But mm-hmm. that, this is a term that is a miss on. It's kind of it is improving or, or kind of camouflaging. It's not correcting the skeletal, underlying skeletal deformity. But yes, the aesthetic outcome is is phenomenal and is such a valid option. Um, but again, we have to kind of go back. If these patients are 18 or 20, um, can, will they always get the amazing Jake, Jake treatment? <laughs> they might, when you retire, have to go with somebody else. Are they going to give the same effect? Uh, and is that, is that going to be st- stressful living with that? Or do they have a one-off surgery, which, which is a significant surgery? Um, do they go for it and um, then you know, come back to you for positive aging treatment and some of the other areas? It's, it's a topic uh, that will rage on for years. So mm. where do implants come into all of this? Because that's something that I occasionally encounter. I've had a couple of male patients who've got chin implants, got one patient who's got cheek implants. Firstly, can you inject over these things, assuming it's a silicon implant? And secondly, why would you choose that over HA? So I don't, I, silicon, I think, is a no-no. It's not, not something that, that I do. And I've had a few referrals from um, some re- really impressive faculty objectors who do phenomenal jawlines. And it's the patient who just come and said, you know, actually, I, I just want like something permanent, which is quite right to yeah. consider or to consider the option. I use customized, so it's a 3D uh, CAD CAM process that is designed. So you'll get a scan, you'll get a lateral care flip, you'll have the anthropometric measurements in the clinic, and then I'll sketch it all out. And I'll say, listen, you know, this is ideally, if you look at Ricketts or Steiner line or zero meridian line, zero line, all the analysis, this is ideally where your chin should be. Okay, and this is maybe what, what your profile will look like with, so Photoshop and a, a simulation also, and then they can then go away and kind of kind of give it some consideration. The, from my perspective, for mild to moderate, okay, I think injectables is the way forward. You get really lovely results, little downtime. However, when a patient is needing to go eight or twelve millimeters, that's a big movement for for product um, to take the chin that far that far forward. So. I rather you played with Volax, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I think um, from a longevity perspective, and I call this the anterior facelift because often people who come and see you in their thirties or forties have early jowling, mm. okay, with a, a weak chin. And I said, listen, I'm going to give you an anterior facelift through a customized chin implant that is going to be designed to fit your chin, okay, nobody else's, and it, it will be. Uh, so I, I work with a designer uh, nearby, nearby, and we plan it. And then it's literally two and a half centimeter incision. You, know, could, you, could, you, can, you can hardly see the scar, and it goes in like a jigsaw. Uh, so because it's large and it slots on here, you can't get it through the ports. You can break it into three dimensional jigsaw, and then you can arrange it um, on on the mandible. It just clicks into place, and then you can secure it with some some screws. Um, right. So, providing that, that they don't take a blow in you know, an RTA, that's potentially good, good for many, many decades. Um, mm-hmm. And then you zip it up, and it's forty-five minutes. And patients have very little downtime; they can pretty much go back. You do it on a Friday; they're back at work on 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 a Monday, and 
it's, it's no problems. Can I ask mm. the, the, the average cost of something like that? <laughs> um, it, it depends. It all very depends on, on what they, all, there's a package for patients, uh, but it's, it's not cheap. Well, no, I mean, ballpark, uh, 10,000 uh, pounds? Yeah. Yeah, maybe a little bit less than that. But, okay. Uh, some people have cheek implants together and they have a package of chin implants, cheek implants, if they need to have their gonial angles done various ways. So, yes. From an injector's opinion, I've always loved the, the idea of, you know, two yearly treatments or whatever it may be because our skeleton is going to change fat pad's going to change, muscle tone's going to change, skin quality's going to change. So having an implant in there, sure, it gives you some structural um, robustness for a longer term, but can that ever look odd as time goes on? Jake, I'm going to turn it around. So every patient that I, I, I sit in the chair and look at, I, I look at them also with a, with a kind of kaleidoscope for 10 years or 20 years' time. Okay, and we all know that Aging is gravitational, okay? There is often that um, atrophy around the chin. There's some mental fullness. You have a jowl. You lose your gonal shape. The neck uh, loses its crispness. And so me putting in um, long-term dimension, it is like having a hammock that is where the palm trees are too close and I'm, I'm sliding the palm trees out to a length so that hammock is nice and taut. Yeah. Uh, I'm holding the soft tissues out to length for longer. And so I, uh, I haven't been doing this for decades. You know, like some of, the, some of my colleagues, great colleagues uh, globally, but I feel that they're going to age better. And these patients, just because they've converted to having a, a customized chin implant, doesn't mean that they still don't get HA elsewhere. Mm-hmm. They actually, they're very grateful that you have given them the option, but they still want go either back to their referrer for ongoing uh, injectables and probably you know, have, a, have a greater treatment need for other parts of their face. It's an option. Not everybody wants it, uh, but it, it has to be an option for, and I'm saying major skeletal discrepancies. But what are your mm-hmm. implants made from? You didn't say they're 3D so, printed? So they're, they're peak. Polyethyl ethyl ketone is, is normally... The, the implant you can have titanium as well but that's a little bit more cost costly a little mm. bit longer in the process to, to make uh, but the nice thing about titanium like dental implants you can treat the inside the fit surface of the denture so of the of the implant and when it goes up to the jaw potentially there is a chance that there is some osseo integration so that the bone will, will grow into the macro um, surface of the implant so that even if the, the screws fail with time or that there is additional stability from a, a link with the, uh, between self and non-self. And, you know, just to do justice to this and talk about the negatives, what are the risks or complications with um, sort of implants? So I think the main risk is infection. Yeah. So I... I Cheek implants are placed through the mouth through a very through an incision and tunnel it up and place it. Okay, um, and touch wood, so I never needed to remove it, a chin, uh, sorry, cheek implant due to infection. But you're opening up your environment, even with mouthwash brushing. There's still all microbes that could 
transit uh, up to that area, so you have to be very careful with wound closure. And chin implants can be placed either behind the lips, so through an indrawal approach, or underneath the jawline. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I prefer to do a small incision underneath the chin, knowing that uh, it's nowhere near oral saliva. Yeah. Uh, so, so, um, and again, I think uh, from my reflection, I, I need to remove one one um, jaw implant um, due to infection. So it is a problem. Um, you've also got your mental nerves in this area here, so you have to be very careful uh, identifying them and making sure that they are free of the implant. There's no pressure, but you know, there's very, I think, um, there's very little downtime. The results are very, very nice. I mean, it's weird. In, in Australia, there aren't that many dentists injecting doing facial aesthetics, whereas in the UK, I've got hundreds of friends who are dentists who are killing it. So what skill set do dentists offer that you know, maybe we're not appreciating, appreciating here in Australia? Yeah, I think this is a really good uh, question. I think uh, the potent- dentists potentially are, are some of the, the great injectors uh, around. I think that if we... The, the old adage of the 10,000-hour 10, rule is that during dental school, they are performing so many dental uh, injections for local anesthetic. Everything is based on dental injections. So that anat- anatomical knowledge of the jaws, uh, the, uh, the nerve foramina, uh, and how to give injections painlessly um, is really, really important. And so there's a lot to be learned from dentists, potentially about aspiration technique, uh, tissue handling, uh, potentially topical anesthetics prior to treatments. Mm. Because if, if you hurt your patient in, in the dental chair, they're not going to come back. <laughs> uh, and so there is a huge amount to be learned. Uh, the gate theory, Melzack and Wall, 1966, um, of trying or 965 of trying to um kind of um camouflage the, the, the noxious the noxious action by massaging the cheek on injecting or using cold spray or various means or um various vibrating um medical devices is, is really very helpful and so from that perspective i think dentists potentially could could take their skills and help the aesthetic community by by providing painless injections. Yeah. Or, but also there's an element of safety. So in the recent Insta post that I put out um, was that you know I put eye visors, uh, eye protection on all patients coming into an aesthetic clinic, um, and then probably only remove them when I'm injecting clothes or the glabella region. I like to. Uh, the risk is very, very low of a, a splash injury or a needle stick or foot dropping anything, but there's that level of um, safety that as dentists we do without even thinking about it when the patient first sits in the chair. Yeah. Um, but I suppose the flip side is that if you're wanting to have injectables, you don't necessarily think, oh, I'm going to go to the high street and see my dentist for injectables. So there is kind of that, there is that, problem with kind of marketing you go to an aesthetic doctor um you may not necessarily go to see a dentist to have your lungs or or, uh your your filler so that's a piece of work that the industry or the field has to look into 
But I think there's, I had a, a discussion with some of the leading uh, managing, managerial figures that set it years ago saying this, this isn't, this isn't kind of a, a neglected population that should really be um, brought into aesthetics, but it wasn't kind of part of the the, uh, the the project for for the company. But this is this is something that we'll see greater globally. Is the dentists will will come online more with aesthetics, um, and I think there is a great mutual opportunity to to learn from them uh, as well. Yeah, I mean it's funny. I speak to patients and here anyway they say oh you know my dentist is dabbling in botox and i find it crazy and i'm like well why they command the face that is their territory that's what they did for five years at dental school yes of course their focus is the mouth and the teeth but their command of facial anatomy is probably better than any gp or nurse or my background as colorectal surgery or anything else so from that perspective, I think it sits perfectly with their skill set, but I think it's just the perception. And, yeah. and yeah, this is something that potentially has to develop with time. Um, but I think dentists have a huge amount to offer the, the, this area of medicine. And in, in London, you know, you, some of some great people are, are, are purely dentally qualified. Um, so I think from um, kind of leading organisations around the world, we just need to find a curriculum that harnesses everybody who has an interest in the biological canvas, which is the face, that we, we, can, we can all share in and, and develop together. Yeah, I mean, we've chatted on the podcast a hundred times about this. It doesn't matter what your skill set is, um, nurse, doctor, dentist, or anyone else. I think if you can show that you can command that syllabus, whatever that framework looks like, then I think you should potentially be allowed to inject. It, it's it's not a case of doctor or nurse or dentist. It's do you have the skills to do it? But mm. also, there's great, there's great opportunity, David, for collaboration. When you look at a lot of these Instagram posts and lips, you know, lips, like the vogue of before and afters of lips, you know, you see some really great work. But you see some pretty average work out there. Um, that is kind of posted as great work. <laughs> but sometimes the, when you look at their mouth and smiling, their, their teeth are letting the result down. So um, if you're going to hang a Picasso in your home, you're not going to buy an Ikea frame or an average frame to, to hang it. You want to have a frame that is commensurate with the quality of your artwork. So you've got the injectors who are producing beautiful lips okay, you guys have to collaborate when the teeth are stained, years of red wine, tobacco, um, curry, staining, or even that they're twisted and rotated to give them the, the gold standard face, uh, um, lower face aesthetics, collaborate, whiten, um, composite of the porcelain veneers and do the lips and you've got world-class results. You mentioned uh, you've got a dentofacial makeover. What what is that? Yeah, so there are, there are a lot of surgeons around the world all offering facelifts. Lifts. You know, I, I need to find a kind of unique. Uh, uh, what is my USP? Why am I getting up in the morning to come to work? What really makes me happy? Um, and I am a dentist. I'm a doctor. I'm a surgeon. How can I combine those to give the patient uh, kind of a a unique facial aesthetic journey. 
Uh, and so from my perspective, I try and blend that in together. Some, as I say, some patients come to me um, for facelifts, and I say, actually, um, keep your money. I, I, I wouldn't give you a facelift. But my, my, the main distraction, if I may be honest and frank, is that your teeth could be improved and vice versa. But there are people who actually um, need work on both sides to get the results that they're wanting. So to be able to give them a journey and say, listen, I'm going to look after your face for the next couple of years. We're going to do a staged approach. Um, and we're going to get every all, tick all the boxes that you want and, and try and meet your expectations. We're going to have to blend some work inside the mouth, some injectables, and possibly some surgery. Yeah. Where do you think, I mean, the future of, of these treatments are going? I mean, in terms of how you're going to approach the face um, as the skill sets get better, as the products get better, do you think there'll always be a need for surgery or do you think that this is something that eventually, other than your extreme trauma cases, that are going to be able to be dealt with non-surgically? I was at, at ASAPs in New York a couple of years ago and, and the kind of the general conclusion when they were looking at all the technologies, injectables and surgery was still that, you know, human performance um, with surgery is still is still ahead ahead now. That was a surgical meeting, so I, I don't know how accurate the, that conclusion was, but I think we, if we fast forward into gold standard, maybe having a clinic with dentist, aesthetic doctor, aesthetic surgeon, aesthetic practitioners, uh, laser specialists, skin specialists, you, you know, having that sort of nirvana um, is just, you know, this is, this is something where I feel it, it, it should go. You travel to your aesthetic clinic for lifestyle and aesthetic management um, because your, your aesthetics may be absolutely spot on. It may be just that you have a job that you hate you are in the rut and actually putting a little bit of filler or Botox, yes, it can help, but it doesn't. It just blurs. What you need is maybe uh, a different direction. So even having a clinical psychologist focused on the assessed patient being within your setup, that is where potentially aesthetics, looking at the beauty inside and in is, is the way forward from, from where I see things. Um, and this is kind of concept that both Tapan and I um, kind of discuss in detail on a regular basis of where we feel aesthetics should go. Um, yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of no, droning on. Good. But I could talk good. about these things for a long time over a beer. The Carlton Cold. They still have them in Sydney? <laughs> yeah, we do. If you can get to a pub that's open. Yeah. <laughs> John, I... I shared a case with you um about a few days ago with one of my patients and that is that you know she's got significant palsy and and um paralysis of half of her face is that the sort of case that you would treat in the nhs yeah yeah i love those those cases there they are um so so it's kind of a lengthy journey but it's it's very very nice um, and that, that you can, this is, is the prime example where the marriage of aesthetic medicine, injectables, and surgery come together um, to give the patient a really lovely outcome. So, you know, I've been, I, I was sort of discussing her case, and by the way, I had a consent to share if anyone's wondering. Um, 
I don't know who to go to exactly to to approach this case. I mean, her, I guess, priority is, is symmetry and looking more normal. And I've thought about how I would do that, whether I treat her normal side, which is moving, using toxin to relax it so it's less jarring, or do I treat the paralyzed side to give her shape like it, it, it's an interesting concept and who is your mentor and, and who, who are you bouncing ideas off? Well, firstly, yeah, always listen to the patient, find out exactly what they want. Because sometimes you can have these massive ideas and surgical plans and the patient wants actually, no, I just want this, just part yeah. of my lip. Just, okay. So that's the key. Second one is it sounds like we need to have a clinic halfway between Sydney and London. <laughs> so David, David, if you can sort that out. <laughs> I'll get on it tomorrow. No problem. <laughs> Where where would halfway be exactly? Be uh, some some island. We'll dredge one up like the Chinese have done. We'll make an island out of sand. Yeah. Fastest fingers first for listeners. Yes, I think we'll yes. go to the Maldives. That sounds nice. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, somewhere somewhere warm. Because I look out the window here at five today. It's, it's typical London oh. October skyline. Yeah, and drizzle. But it, it's still still very beautiful in that way. Yeah, and coming back. That's what I was. I was that's what I was referencing. I was, they've made they've made these artificial islands out of um, sand. They've been dredging them and making islands, so we could make our own islands between here and London. Okay, <laughs> do it, do it. I'm there. Okay. <laughs> I'm packing now in this weather. Okay, so uh, coming back. So I was really very fortunate in my cosmetic year in Brussels. Uh, Hugely grateful to everyone who's trained me in the past on the south coast, London, Oxford. Um, but Brussels was a profound year for me. I learned a lot. It was very hard, but there were some positives and negatives of the year. But I came across uh, Daniel Labbe, uh, who was a uh, past president of the French Plastic Surgery Association. And he um, performed, and I actually ran a facial paralysis workshop for two days for uh, an international workshop at um, the, the hospital. And he was one of the stars um, and with uh, Biglioli from Italy as well came, who was also a great character. And together with Mo Marks and three of us, we put this on. Labe does this amazing process called the temporalis lengthening myoplasty, which focuses mainly on the symmetry of the mouth and the dynamics of the mouth. So mm. basically, you have your temporalis, which is a fan-shaped muscle on the side of the temporalis bone, and it's attached underneath the zygomatic arch, David, uh, uh, to the, the coronoid process. So every time we clench, the, the muscle clenches, uh, our, mm -hmm. our teeth are jammed, are jammed shut. Now, this is served by vessels and nerves deep to the muscle. Now, if you carry out a, an incision, face bit incision extending over the top of the head, you can detach potentially 95% of that muscle, leaving a cuff at the top, top of the area of the periosteum. And you can release it by releasing the arch and releasing it off the jaw. And you have a little sharp, thin piece of coronoid process that's left. And then you can tunnel it through the face. And then you open up the nasolabial fold. And before, in, in your pre-assessment and your workup, you determine on the other side of the face the type of smile that they have. Is it a Mona Lisa smile? Is it a Jack Nicholson-type smile? Is it a complex smile? And you divide the tendon of the temporalis into three, so there's three trousers. And then you fashion it into the top, 
the, the top of the nasolabial fold, central and lower, with different tensions depending on where you want the, your neck core. Um, and then you then you either put the arch back or you leave it off, and you then attach the, the muscle more anteriorly in the fossa um, to the uh, residing um, periosteum. You close up, and then you wait. And then the, the star of the process is the patient and the speech and language therapist. The facial activity, the facial act exercises, the facial gym on a daily basis will go. So on command, that muscle will contract and they'll smile. So whenever they want to smile, they on command, it will contract. Okay. But they have to clench their teeth to smile. Yeah. So they have to think that they're going to clench and it smiles. And they work hard and hard and hard. And that mechanical smile eventually becomes an emotive smile. That is the kind of nirvana. Mm. Is that over months and months and months with regular practicing, they don't necessarily need to clench. And the trigeminal is, is taking over the role where you're missing the facial nerve. The real silver lining is that you can get neurotonization. So the electrical activity can switch onto the orbiculus oculi of the affected eye. And as we all know, we, we can tell somebody who is not truly smiling because their eyes aren't mimicking the smile. Their eyes are still wide open. They're kind mm. of, say, cheese. You know, you can eat cheese, your eyes don't. When you're in a motive, you know, you're in love, your eyes light up, your eyelids respond. And so that electrical activity can transfer to the lids and you can get this uh, electrical activity so that the eyelids also will smile with you on that side. However, the flip side happens is that the muscles on the healthy side, the contralateral side, overpull. It comes out like synchronesis. So even with all your good intentions, you may only get 40%, 50% of the pull on the, the, the treatment side, the surgical side, but you're smiling on the other side at 150%, 200%, mm. which you don't want. So it's still uh, working. So you use very, very gentle uh, HA, um, to just soften the, uh, almost probably disrupt the psychoplasmic activity so that the, the smile is not so proud. You take it down to 75%, you've got 50% here. Um, everyone's not perfect and symmetrical. You get a lovely result. So you need to marry surgery and injectables, innovative HA, and potentially a little bit of Botox because you get banding in the platysma. And, you know, it, it just goes, goes on. And the rotation of the nasal tip with a little bit of Botox, it'll, it will also derotate because the muscles uh, want to just slightly kink the nasal tip and set them to one side. So it's, it's amazing. Um, it's amazing. Uh, I've got one patient who travels from uh, uh, the Isle of Wight for, for her mm. injectables who's, who has this. And she kind of says, John, I've come to see you. I've taken uh, one bus to the ferry terminal. I've taken a ferry. I've taken a, a bus to the train station, trained it up to London, under, braved the underground walk, and uh, I've had to wait an hour to see you, but it's all working <laughs> because, you know, I, I, these injectables really make a difference. And you kind of get blown away by just how motivated these patients are for getting back to smiling. Hugely important in the family and the wider friendship circles to be able to respond physically um to to emotion absolutely um, 
aware that our podcast has been going on for a while, but I just want to touch on the topic of myomodulation. You've mentioned it a couple of times and it's something that I use deliberately, but we've had some guests on who are a little bit mm. non-believers, as it were. Do mm. you have any sort of clinical data or are we just sort of saying <laughs> anecdotally? I, I, think, uh, I think it's interesting. I think this is a really... And I've, I've, I've heard two experts stand on stages and they haven't heard each other's talks. And they both gave talks on myomodulation and they both kind of almost contradicted one another. Yeah. And that I felt was that is where we are globally at the moment. Um, people are very excited about it. There's some great papers that have been written by some world authorities on it. Um, I want to believe it works. Uh, I, I, and um, it's, a, it's a problem because we are using injectables every day alongside muscles. Um, we're not calling it myomodulation, and and uh, we're doing myomodulation for medical in medical s- scenarios. So um, it's working when we want it to work, and we're maybe not picking it up when um, it is happening, but we may not be necessarily registering that it's happening. So this is a massive piece of work. Uh, so I'm, I'm collecting my data, and maybe in ten years I'll publish. <laughs> I've got enough cases. <laughs> ten years. <laughs> If you need a bigger cohort, give me a shout. <laughs> so David, as we speak, is, is working on that island concept. Yes, we'll make we'll, we'll do it all at the same time. By the time I'm finished dredging all the sand, we'll be ready to do release your, your studies, Goodness. your paper. Can we, can we can we have a cricket net? Because I think Jake sounds pretty useful, and I'd love to at some stage. It's on my bucket list to, to play a little bit of cricket with, with Jake. Yeah, well, I used to play as well, so we'll we'll, we'll, play, you? we'll do Fantastic. a bit of island cricket. Yeah. So, uh, I think uh, I used to be useful. Now I'd be useless. It's probably more <laughs> a description that I would use. But anyway, <laughs> I remember turning out for the doctors versus consultants when I first moved over here, and it was bloody embarrassing. I tell you. <laughs> so you've got to promise me a trip to the SCG, and we'll oh. have a net to get all the three of us a net together, and and a beer um, when all this COVID settles down. I think we'll Absolutely. do more than a beer. We'll take you to Bisteca. <laughs> you like it um so john thank you so much for your time I, i've actually got so many more questions maybe we could cobble together a second podcast in the future if um people listening want to reach out and ask you and, and probe a bit more into some of the stuff that we've covered how can they contact you so a couple they can either direct message me through my instagram at mr john live they can email me here at fire clinic info at fireclinic.com. Um, that's probably the, the, the best the best way forward. So yeah, I'm 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 very happy. I, I still get emails from Canada and states from people who, who have listened and they just kind of reach out. It's, it's very very nice to hear. So it's been a real pleasure. I, I, I'm humbled to be on. I've really enjoyed listening to some of the podcasts that you have. Uh, you've had some great names. Um, I feel a little. No, we've got one more. <laughs> we've got one more now, exactly. I feel very, very honoured to be on. So thank you for including me. And to all the listeners, I hope you all stay well and hopefully uh, yeah, catch up at future meetings. Uh, it's our pleasure. Thanks, John. Thanks for your time. Thanks, John. And we'll catch up soon. Take care, guys. 
For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests. 